We read God's word in Zechariah 13, Zechariah being the second to the last minor prophet of the Old Testament. Zechariah 13. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, Then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husband men. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people. And they shall say, The Lord is my God. This far we read God's word. The seventh verse is that which we consider this morning. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Beloved saints in Christ, The prophecy of Zechariah has at least three main characteristics, which also come out in our text. In the first place, if you were to read that entire prophecy from start to finish, you would see that it's full of symbolism. Because much of it is a vision, the way the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation is full of symbolism being a vision. So also Zechariah. We have a symbol, a figure, in our text. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. You all know what a sword is. But the use of the word sword in the text is figurative or symbolic, as we will see presently. In the second place, Zechariah is the most explicitly messianic of the Old Testament minor prophets. He has a clear focus on the coming of Jesus Christ, the work that Jesus Christ would do, and the glory of the kingdom that Jesus Christ would establish. So that you might read in the book of the coming of Jesus Christ. Remember, for instance, the prophecy of Jesus Christ's coming 
on a mule, on a donkey, as Jesus Christ did riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Zechariah 9, verse 9. A prophecy of Jesus Christ being both priest and king, that which the Messiah must be, but no Old Testament Israelite could be. Read Zechariah 6, verse 12. There are in the text, in the book also, prophecies of the suffering of Jesus Christ, and we have one of those in our text today. But also, the purpose of this, and that's the third characteristic of the prophet, is to encourage the people of God in the great hope of the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah writes some 80 or more years after the captives have returned from captivity. They began well, didn't they? They returned to Jerusalem, started building the walls of Jerusalem, started building the temple, but then it petered out. Their hope diminished. Oh, The enemies around and the neighbors stopped the building of the temple. The people no longer looked for the building of the temple and focused on the coming of the Messiah. But as Haggai says, who wrote at the same time, you are far more content when your own houses are well built and luxurious, but the temple of God lies yet in ruins. So Haggai and Zechariah are both encouraging the saints to keep looking for the coming of Christ and reminding them that the great hope of the Christian is not anything we find in the Old Testament, but is the kingdom of Christ when it comes in all its fullness. And our text, or rather the chapter, begins, and it in that day there shall be a fountain opened, and it shall come to pass in that day, says Zechariah again and again. Keep looking ahead to the coming of Christ. Not just his first now, for he has come the first time, but his second. And not his second with a view to coming to earth to make our earthly life better, but his second with a view to renewing all of creation and bringing us to heaven there to live with him. Now, those three characteristics being found in this prophet, he says, as it were, in our text. Before that great day comes, final salvation, bliss, joy, peace, righteousness of life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Before that day comes, the church of Jesus Christ and Christ himself must go through deep trials and suffering. And that's a word for you and for me to remember. Heaven is coming. But only the Lord knows at what moment he'll bring us there. And only the Lord knows when he will send Jesus Christ to renew all creation. Before that day, there is suffering. Endure it in hope. And the suffering especially, which Zechariah directs our attention to in our text... The last explicit prophecy in his book of the sufferings of Jesus Christ is the suffering of Christ on the cross. It is that that the Spirit has in mind through Zechariah when he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Smite the shepherd. 
And there's a dreadful effect, not only a dreadful command, but a dreadful effect on the sheep. The sheep shall be scattered. But in the way of the smiting of the shepherd, really on the basis of that work of Christ on the cross, and in the way of his proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament, gathering the scattered sheep again, he prepares to bring about the glorious day of his kingdom. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, the sword directed against the shepherd. Notice first the dreadful command. Second, the scattering effect. And third, the gracious purpose. The command as we find it in the text is a dreadful command. And you and I must sense the dread of it this morning. In the first place, it's a dreadful command because it is a command to kill, smite the shepherd. The point of the text and of the command is not give him a wound, but he lives yet. It is inflict death on him. That's dreadful. Anyone who's seen war, and we have again in the last month or so on television and in the news report seen something of what war does. Anyone who has seen war knows the dreadfulness of war. And Jehovah here is at war. And that adds to the dread. It's the second thing that I would say that underscores the dreadfulness of the command. This is not the command of one man with regard to another man. That would be bad enough. But this is the command of Jehovah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, saith the Lord of hosts. Bad enough when a man goes on the warpath against another man, but when Jehovah God goes on the warpath against you or me, what refuge do we have? And yet that's what Jehovah is doing here. He is going on the warpath, setting his face to destroy his own shepherd. No machinery, no ammunition, no submarines, no aircraft can defend a man from Jehovah God when he goes on that warpath. Evidently, The war he fights is a war on behalf of his covenant, for it is not just the God or a God, but the Lord, that is Jehovah, the covenant God of Jehovah, the covenant name of God that's used in our text. And evidently, this Lord, this Jehovah, not only in his love for his covenant, but also as the creator of all things goes to war, when we read that he is the Lord of hosts, That means he has many armies, not just many men, but that he puts all of creation at his disposal. This is the Jehovah of hosts who fought on behalf of Israel when he destroyed the Egyptians. The Jehovah of hosts who used thunders and lightnings and other phenomena in nature to save his people Israel from enemies that opposed them as you read the Old Testament history. But he is now on the warpath against his shepherd. And that thirdly is what underscores the dreadfulness of the command. 
If it were Jehovah, the God of the covenant, saying that he puts all of creation, which he has at his disposal, in the service of preserving his covenant people, bringing his kingdom to pass, and he wars against the Egyptians and the Philistines and the ungodly unbelievers, that's one thing. But his sight is focused on that fellow that is his shepherd. His shepherd the one to whom the care of the sheep is entrusted, his fellow, that is, his neighbor or his friend. And now the dread, you see, is not just this, that Jehovah is on the war path against Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the text and the one to whom it refers when it calls him a fellow and shepherd. But here's the real dread for you and for me. If Jehovah will kill Jesus Christ, who is himself perfectly righteous, then what will he do to the sheep, to me, to you, who are sinners? That the fulfillment of the text is found in the death of Christ, the New Testament makes plain. Jesus Christ is the shepherd, the fellow of God. On the one hand, that's evident from Christ's quote of the text in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. And this, when Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, and in fact, leaving the upper room and going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. This does justice to the fact that Jesus Christ as the shepherd is the one whom God has given to and assigned to the care of the sheep, the people of God. It does justice to the fact that Jesus Christ has lived close to God in intimate fellowship with God as his fellow friend or neighbor. I and my father are one, Jesus Christ said, to emphasize how close a relationship to God he had. And the text is looking at Jesus Christ and the work he would do from the viewpoint not merely of his being a man, he is a man, against the man that is my fellow, and not only from the viewpoint of his being God in the flesh, he is God in the flesh, of course, and he must be, the text is looking at Jesus Christ from the viewpoint of his office, mediator of the covenant prophet, priest, and king. The office of Christ was to be a shepherd. That is, in everything he did, in everything he said, to provide for the needs of the sheep, to feed the sheep, to guard and defend the sheep, to unite the sheep, to give the sheep peace, joy, contentedness, and happiness. And in order to fulfill that calling, He must be very God and very man. There are those who try to find in the text more fulfillment than just Jesus Christ in his death. And it's not uncommon that you can do that in some of the Old Testament prophecies. That there's a fulfillment for Christ and then an ongoing fulfillment for the people of God in the New Testament. If that's true here... That suggests that you and I are shepherds 
I'm dismissing the idea. Let's be clear on that. I'm not defending and promoting it. But those who do then must suggest that you and I are also shepherds and that there is some smiting, some, some pouring out of the wrath of God for sin yet on the church that remains. And you and I say of that as good Reformed Christians that it cannot be that the work Jesus Christ did on the cross was a complete bearing of the full wrath of God, that he is the one who descended into hell on my and your behalf. But now the proof in the text that there is no further fulfillment is this. Jesus Christ having claimed that he's that shepherd, the text viewing him from the viewpoint of his office, you and I say, He's the only Christ. I'm not a little Christ with him. I'm a Christian because he lives and works in me, but I can do nothing to add to the sufferings that he endured. And so the text is a prophecy of his death. Seth the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd. The the word sword now, I said earlier, was a figure, and it's a figure with reference to all of the instruments that God would use to bring about the death of Jesus Christ. And as you think of the last week of Christ's life, you can name several different instruments that God used. There were, of course, the chief priests who were working hard for a long time to try to figure out how to crucify or kill Jesus Christ. There was Judas Iscariot, who had agreed already to betray Jesus Christ. There were Pilate and his cohorts who would be instrumental in appointing Jesus Christ to be crucified. And there were the Jews who had been stirred up by the chief priests to call for and clamor for his crucifixion. And the text is a prophecy of all of those instruments being brought together at one moment in time to fulfill the one purpose of God with regard to the sending of Jesus Christ, that is, put him on the cross. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd. If the sword... All those instruments that will be used to bring Jesus Christ to the death of the cross cannot operate on its own if it operates under the direction and control of Jehovah God so that he is the one who must say, Awake, O sword, and get on with your task. Then what you and I find in the text is the sovereign control of God over not only the circumstances leading to the death of Christ, but the purpose of that death also. The Apostle Peter will remind us of that sovereign control of God. What he would tell the Jews, you with wicked hands crucified and slayed him, but he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God is in control. God is the one who says, there must be a Pilate, I will raise him up. There must be a Judas Iscariot, I will raise him up. God is the one who says, 
There must be Jews clamoring for the death of Christ. I will raise them up. There must be one who finally, four soldiers who will finally nail Jesus Christ to that cross. I will raise them up. God is in control. So in control that if you remember the history of the last week of Jesus' life, those chief priests who were intent on crucifying or at least killing Jesus and Judas Iscariot intent on bringing Jesus into their power had decided it will not be on the night of the Passover. It will not be that night. We must be holy. We must observe the sacred ordinances. We must purify ourselves and we must bring our lambs and eat them. We are law-abiding, godly people. But God said it must be that night. And it's in that sense that the sword, as it were, was sleeping. All those instruments God had raised up have themselves agreed not tonight. And God says, tonight, awake, O sword. So that Jesus himself will say to Judas Iscariot, that thou doest, do quickly. All of the Pharisees and the chief priests will leave their meals, their Passover meals about to be eaten and will go attend to business that showed in their heart how they hated Jesus Christ and the covenant of God. But the Lord woke up his, sh- his sword and he caused it that night. Why that night? Because this shepherd is the Passover lamb. And he who is at the one time a shepherd is also that lamb who will die for our sins. That begs the question then, what has the shepherd done? And we know the answer. He has done nothing. He's righteous. He's just. He's kept the law. He served his father faithfully. Not once in the smallest iota did he transgress that law that we heard this morning. When finally he summarized the law, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. He set forth himself as the example, the only one who could, but also the example for us to follow by his grace in us. Why the dreadful command Smite the shepherd. I come back to the fact that the word shepherd refers to his office. And that it was in his office as mediator of the covenant that Jesus Christ represented, substituted for you, me, and all the elect of God, sinners that we are throughout time and history. And that's why the command to smite the shepherd does not and need not fill you and me with dread. That if the Lord would kill his own shepherd, what's to prevent him from coming now to kill us? The answer is this. He sent Jesus Christ to the death of the cross, poured out on him his wrath, caused him to experience and suffer hellish agonies, 
so that I and you who deserve the same would not endure them. Smite the shepherd with a view to the saving of the sheep. But it isn't the saving of the sheep that's the first and prominent and foremost effect of the smiting of the shepherd. Not even the way Zechariah presents it in the text. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. That's the prophecy and that's what happened. The disciples, first of all, and others who followed Jesus... Seeing him hanging on the cross, leave. The disciples, even before he hangs on the cross, as is being tried in the, in the palace of Pontius Pilate and, and prior to that of the high priest, the disciples forsake him and flee. Peter denies him. The sheep are being scattered. Think of the dreadful condition of sheep that are scattered because their shepherd has died. Defenseless against wolves, unable to provide for their own needs, ready to drink whatever's at hand, though it might poison and sicken them, or to eat whatever there is at hand, though it might be the cause of their own death. Not unified, they will die. And that's the picture, first of all, that Zechariah presents and the Spirit through him of the effect of the death of Christ on you and me before now, before he rises again. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. You see that in the disciples as they left Jesus. They're ready to go back to their fishing. They have nothing more to live for. At least they had their hopes bound up in this Jesus Christ But he's dead now, and so what more is there? They thought he would be the king of Israel, but he's dead now, so he must not be. And they go back to the work they had once done. If Jesus Christ died without representing you and me bearing our sins... And therefore, if he had not only died, but still was in the grave, not living today, see how you and I would be like those scattered sheep and in such spiritual peril. That's the point that the Spirit would impress on you and me, to drive home our need for this Jesus Christ, and not his death only, but also for his resurrection. Apart from his resurrection... You and I are still lost. Satan would hold sway over us. For if Christ has died not on our behalf and is not risen again, then we're not delivered from the power and bondage of Satan. We cannot be fed then in the green pastures of the word of God that promise deliverance and give us hope. For there is no hope. There had been no deliverance. All you and I can then hope for is that the wrath of God will also be poured out upon us. And there will be no deliverance of that wrath if the sheep remain scattered. 
And for a while, after Christ's death, did I have a picture of what our life would be like without a risen Savior. That brings me to make an application to the Church of Jesus Christ today who know and confess that Jesus Christ is risen and that we do have in him full and free salvation and who do hope for the day of his return and our own perfection but also in the preaching of Jesus Christ, that doctrine of his death and resurrection be clearly sounded. Now that's something you and I ought to say, of course it must be. We know that. We're used to that. And if that's your testimony, then praise be God. But where this news, where this doctrine of Jesus Christ substituting for sinners, dying on our behalf to bear the wrath of God for sin, and now living again to work in us his life, where that word is not clearly proclaimed, you still have sheep. Scattered. Sheep not fed. Sheep not nourished by the gospel. Sheep not being taught that Jesus Christ has fully satisfied for all their sins. The gracious purpose of God in scattering the sheep is to restore them. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Even though this is just a short part of the text, yet there are some substantial questions that have to be faced. First of all, an explanation of the text at this point, I will turn mine hand upon the little ones, does not refer anymore to the work of God showing his anger or his wrath. This isn't God striking the little ones. This isn't God saying, the sheep must scatter, and if the little ones don't, I'm going to push them along. This is God saying, I will turn my hand with a view to their salvation and their gathering. The sheep are scattered, and I will restore my flock. That that's what it means is clear from the rest of the chapter. It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. So a remnant is saved. And verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. The restoration of a remnant. A small part is the purpose of God in the scattering of the whole flock. And this is fulfilled in number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. And number two, 
the work that he continues to do throughout all of time and history, declaring himself to be our shepherd, and will be fulfilled even more, number three, when he comes again on the clouds of glory and takes us to be with him. For though he died, he lives, and though we were scattered, we are restored, so that there is again for the sheep food set forth, a defense against predators, Satan, the world, and a deliverance from our own sinful human nature. And there is again for the sheep the prospect of lying down contentedly under the watchful care of our Lord and Savior. You and I are the beneficiaries then of the saving work of God, not only in the death, but also in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries as were the disciples. For Jesus Christ arose again, and then after that poured out his spirit. They understood what he had done. They understood why for a while they must be scattered to know their need for him, but that in the outpouring of the Spirit, he gathered them together again, and now they would go into the whole world to preach the gospel. You and I are the beneficiaries every time we hear the gospel preached. We are told, though Christ died for you, he is not dead, but he lives, and he works in our hearts by his grace and spirit and in his church to save, to purify. But why? If ultimately he is going to bring his little ones back into a flock again, does he first cause the flock to be scattered? What shepherd says I only want a third of my flock. So I'm going to send dogs among them to disperse them. And then I'm going to go through the arduous work of going and finding the one third that I want to keep. And I'm going to bring them back again. This seems to you and to me so futile. Such a wrong method of accomplishing a purpose. And yet, Jesus Christ has good purposes and God in him. In the first place, because that flock of which Zechariah spoke was the flock as you saw it on earth. It wasn't the church as it will be in heaven made up only of sheep. But in that flock, as was often the case in the Old Testament, there were both sheep and goats. The death of Jesus Christ had the effect of scattering the sheep, as it were, in order to separate the sheep from the goats. The Lord loves his sheep. Those sheep manifest themselves in the church of Jesus Christ by looking to him, confessing our own sins and unworthiness, and saying only he took them away. Do you make that confession? Behold your Lord and Savior in the death and the cross and his resurrection and say, I needed him. That's the way in which the Lord gathers the sheep. And so there is, first of all, outwardly 
a separation of sheep and goats. In the second place, the dispersing of the flock with a view to gathering them again has as its goal the purging of the sheep themselves. And the Lord speaks of that in verse 9. I will bring them through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. That is, now when you and I understand what life apart from Jesus Christ would be like, the dread of it, the misery, the hopelessness of it, then contemplating our need for him. The sin that remains in us, we look to him, believing not only, but also seeking his power to purify us more and more to hate sin and to flee from it. And in the third place, in order to impress upon the church of Jesus Christ that finally those whom he saves are not the great strong rams, but the lambs. I will turn mine hand, I will restore the little ones. And there's a figure again for you and for me of who we really are and what we are. Sinners, dead in sin apart from the grace of Christ, bringing nothing to Christ, not a big ram who might say to the shepherd, I can use my horns and I can fight against the enemy and I can help you, but the little ones, the defenseless lambs. Acknowledging then that there's nothing that we can add to the work of Christ. Nothing that we can do to make that work more powerful or more effective, but that as an infant entirely depends upon his mother, so you and I entirely depend upon Jesus Christ. And having been brought to see that, apart from Christ, we have no hope. The prophet speaks in the text of that Christ who would be not only smitten, but also raised. Look on him, dead and risen. Look on him, exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. Look on him, beloved. And now, on the basis of his work, enjoy the covenant fellowship and friendship with God. That is ours, and that was God's purpose in sending Christ. Say, I am unworthy, I am a little one, but it was his hand on me that saved me. And then call on him. For he said, they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. Hear him today say to you, it is my people. And confess in gratitude, the Lord is my God. Amen. Heavenly Father, may thy word and spirit build us up in faith and in godliness. As we behold our Lord and Savior, crucified, dead, and risen again. And as we today hear his word and rejoice in the salvation thou hast given. Now may our whole life be